1: Pirate tapes rob artists and studios of their rightful income and add to the cost of a video to the consumer. Video piracy is a major problem. Please help us stop it. Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And hello, my beautiful ICY, my listeners. I hope y'all are settling into a lovely Saturday. It is raining all weekend here in Brooklyn, which has basically given me the permission I needed to do absolutely nothing. Speaking of giving and receiving permission, I was thinking recently about the first and let's say last time I committed a crime allegedly. I was talking to my mom on the phone and she reminded me of this laptop I had when I was 13 or 14 that I managed to get a virus on. And by managing to get a virus, I mean that I rendered this laptop absolutely unusable. I can still, in fact, very vividly remember the absolute panic I felt when I told my mom what had happened. And her first question was, of course, what were you doing? On this laptop. And I had to tell her that I was trying to illegally download a book that I wanted to read. Yeah, I somehow managed to get one of the worst viruses our computer repair guy had ever seen, not because I was watching porn like a normal teenager, but because it was 10 p.m. and I desperately needed to read the next book in PC Cast House of Night series. Yes, it's about vampires. No one should be surprised. I was thinking about this not because I'm haunted by my mistakes every single night as I try to fall asleep, or at least that's not the only reason. The other reason... The relevant reason to y'all is because that virus gave me a pretty strong aversion to pirating, an aversion that I think I might need to start getting over. If the FBI is listening to this, I'm not going to confess to wanting to commit a crime. Um, What I am going to do is reconsider the ethics of piracy in our current internet landscape. And I've been reconsidering since last year when HBO and Discovery merged and in an effort to pay down some debt decided to remove a whole host of original content from their streaming platform. It was a moment that in hindsight kind of fundamentally reoriented the way I think about the internet and art, and preservation. On some level, I've always known that nothing lasts on the internet, despite its promises. I remember a few years back, I decided to revisit one of my favorite fanfic writers, only to realize they had scrubbed all their work from their Tumblr and that the Wayback Machine hadn't captured any of it. But that feels very different from where we are now, in a moment where corporations can fund and develop and create entire shows and movies that have no physical media associated with them, and then in a second decide that they're not worth keeping alive. And if that's the moment we're in, doesn't it kind of just make a little bit of sense to find ways to keep these things alive, even if it means returning to Pirate Bay? Like I said, I've been thinking about this for a while, and so I thought I might export some of the moral and ethical squishiness of digital piracy to someone who is smart and empathetic and who coincidentally just did an episode about Napster, the short-lived peer-to-peer file sharing app that was once described as a haven of piracy. After a short break, I'll be back with Sarah Marshall of You're Wrong About, and we're going to discuss the past, present, and future of pirating on the internet. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did.
0: And
1: I'm back with Sarah Marshall, host of the podcast You're Wrong About, which reexamines infamous moments and figures in our history, from the Donner Party to preppies to that time Tom Cruise jumped on Oprah's couch. She also hosts the You Are Good podcast, which describes itself as a feelings podcast about movies, which is maybe one of the best podcast descriptions I've ever read. She's also guest-hosted an episode of ICYMI almost exactly a year ago, called The girl bossification of Casual Sex. Sarah, thank you for coming back for what is apparently our new yearly tradition. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
2: I'm excited to do this again next year.
1: <laughs> we'll see what's happening in April of 2024. It's an election year, so I'm going to assume a lot. Oh boy, Yeah, We'll we'll have to do a really fun one. <laughs> <laughs> so last time you were here, I somehow didn't ask you the question that I asked all of our guest hosts now. So now I'm going to pose it to you, which is what is your very first internet memory? Oh my gosh.
2: My first internet memory, I don't know if this counts, but I remember my dad uh, getting us AOL. This would have been 1995 or maybe 1996. So the very beginning of it being kind of widely available to American homes and logging in and showing our neighbor. Ryan Burns, how to log in. And I remember him like showing my dad typing in his password and Ryan saying, oh, you made your password all stars because it showed up as asterisk to keep it, you know, anonymous. And yeah, looking back at all of us on the frontier of this thing that was going to take over the entire world and just not understanding anything about it. And then, of course, the famous AOL login experience, which is just like, Lives in a part of my brain at all times.
1: It's such a beautiful experience. I also love everyone's first internet experience, often involves being in middle school or high school, which means the person that they're with is always referred to as first name, last name, which is just such a thing we all did. Or like Brett C. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. A follow up question that I think will nicely transition us into our episode topic is Do you remember the first piece of media that you pirated?
2: Yeah, the first software I did this with, again, my uh, my friend showed me how to do this in eighth grade. We had moved away and then came back to where we had originally lived in Portland, Oregon, when I was 13. And so I reconnected with my best friend from grade school, and she was downloading music. And she taught me how to use, I think, Kaza at the time, and then I was using LimeWire, I think, in high school. And it <laughs> it might have been the song Sail Away by David Gray or like Sail Away With Me, not Sail Away by Styx or whatever, but like <laughs> this like very kind of adult contempo, like sad sack rom-com oriented song that I had heard on Kink FM. <laughs> and I also, I think I, this was not the first thing, but I know that very early on, I downloaded a bunch of music by Dido because it was 2001 and Dido was everything. <laughs>
1: I love that. I was really into pop punk as a child. We were talking a bit about Twilight before recording, um, which I think kind of fits perfectly into the picture of me as a teenager. So my first song, I think, was something very sad and emo um, that I can't quite recall at the moment. (laughs) But we are here to talk about digital piracy, which is a topic I thought you'd be really smart on because you're generally smart. But also because you just did an episode of You're Wrong About all about Napster, which was this short-lived peer-to-peer file sharing app. I'm just going to give a little bit of history for those of y'all who either haven't listened to Sarah's episode, which you definitely should, or who aren't old enough to remember the halcyon days of Napster. Napster was founded in 1999 by two men named Sean. And like I said, it was a peer-to-peer file sharing app, specifically MP3s. What that meant is I could go on my computer and make accessible all the files I had in my music library so others could download them and vice versa. About a year after it was founded, 14 million songs are being shared a minute on Napster, and that wasn't even the peak of the app, which came about a year later when the company was embroiled in broad legal trouble. In your episode, you describe Napster as a sort of OG social network. Could you say a bit more about what you meant by that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is so fascinating to me about Napster is that you weren't accessing music from a centralized library, you were accessing people's collections, and I think one of the things about music that I think stays consistent regardless of what technology we use to share it, is that you learn about it in many ways, but one of the big ones is through people and through people who, you know, you've, you get a recommendation from them that you like or you would admire them and that music is kind of a way of them sharing a bigger world with you and also a way for people to connect with each other. Um, And I think we kind of come full circle because now social media is, we're seeing with TikTok, it's like the way people can kind of comment on and deconstruct and remix music uh, to emphasize and help spread the videos they're making and the arguments they're making, whatever they're doing there. Yeah, music as as a social media, kind of the electricity that drives it just makes total sense. In in both these cases,
1: it makes me think of the MySpace profile song, which was such an integral part of that experience.
2: (laughs) And like, and even on Facebook, where it was, I remember spending way too much energy curating what I listed as my favorite music on Facebook, and it wasn't really my favorite music. It was my aspirational favorite music because I was on a college campus and I wanted people to like me,
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I couldn't just be like the Wicked soundtrack all the time. (laughs) No, I could not. Very honestly, be like, I'm listening to Taylor Swift's early album. I'm just like, of course, I'm listening to Bon Iver. (laughs) So, like I said before, Napster was extremely short-lived. It Mm -hmm. started in 1999, and by 2001, it was basically defunct after, I think, every single record label in the world filed copyright infringement lawsuits against them. But the conclusion you and Nico came to in your episode was that in that short period of time, Napster kind of created, or at least helped create, the Internet as we know it. Mm -hmm. Could you say a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... The case of Napster is so interesting because it was something that clearly just fit, you know? Like, I think the feeling that, I don't know, that we all have at certain times in our lives where if you're a musician, you pick up an instrument and it just feels good in your hands or you you try something out and it just feels right to you. Like, this was what felt right to the internet as it was and, and to people on it. The idea had gotten out of Pandora's box and couldn't be put back in. And specifically... You know, the internet as a place where the culture is coming from the bottom to the top rather than from the top to the bottom. I also feel like it's very... Of the immediately post-Napster era, the ad so many of us grew up with, you wouldn't steal a car, you wouldn't steal a phone, why download a song? Which is really presuming a lot about me. Like, who's to say I wouldn't steal a car? You don't know me, ad in the beginning of 200 cigarettes. Um, The ease with which this idea of peer-to-peer file sharing could be carried out, it demonstrated something really huge that no one could be forced to forget.
1: The thing that I think really struck me about your episode about Napster was the fact that there are a few different concepts Mm. that we take for granted now that before Napster were pretty much unthinkable. And I think this is the one that really hit me the hardest. Mm. The concept of just being able to listen to a single song rather than a whole album. I knew But had forgotten how much of the music industry was built on charging people $20 for a CD so they could listen to the one song they knew. Yeah. And that just doesn't exist anymore. And then the idea of sharing music with people who you weren't like burning CDs for. And then the last thing was the kind of primacy of digital music, which Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty much impossible for people under the age of like 25 To really understand that before in 1999, you basically only had access to the music you could physically get your hands on. Yeah. Especially now when most consumers almost exclusively listen to music digitally. I say it's hard for people under 25, but it's also hard for me to remember what that moment was. And I wanted to ask, do you remember a moment or a time you realized this computer... In this special room in my parents' house means that I basically have access to whatever song I could mm. possibly want right now.
2: Yeah, that for me was getting Kaza. And then also uh, in 2005, when YouTube came along, I was a junior or a senior in high school. And, I mean, that was a whole other thing, too, because, of course, that when YouTube first entered many of our lives, I think a lot of us were enchanted by how we could use it for nostalgia purposes. And the things I first remember watching were old segments on Sesame Street that I like half remembered mm-hmm. from when I was a little kid and the like sort of Philip Glass animations and things like that. But yeah, the, the Kazan moment was this incredible sense of power as a 13-year-old. As a and also, you know, that it, it kind of, that it has happened in stages because with Kazan it was like stuff would be mislabeled, stuff would be... Hard to find. You would, you know, you had to kind of sift through search results because it would often be the thing that you wanted would be buried somewhere at the bottom. And there would just be stuff that you couldn't get there regardless. But I feel like it's impossible to overstate I, how important it is for kids to be able to access music without having to get their parents to... Mm agree to bring it into the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents were pretty permissive about that kind of thing. But you, you not having to go through a an authority figure and of it being free. Like, I don't have a, an idea for how this could be made workable. But I do believe strongly that like it, it is possible and it and it should be that artists be paid fairly and that music be accessible to people who don't pay money for it and who can't pay money for it.
1: Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Kaza. My site was LimeWire, but is mm-hmm. kind of the same thing. I feel like
2: they have the exact same interface. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that like Kaza went down and LimeWire stepped in to take its place and yeah.
1: Yeah, man I can really just picture that like two-dimensional lime cut in half in yes. my mind right now.
2: Love that lime. And like the top you like I remember it was like two kind of segments of the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you have like your search results on top and your downloads yes. on bottom. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> so one of the reasons in fact, probably the primary reason Napster died was because it was a haven of piracy. Many other havens popped up in its aftermath. We mentioned LimeWire and Kazaa, but And let me know if you agree. It feels like there was a time period where I basically just stopped pirating. Yeah. And it was around the advent of streaming services when actually owning a copy of something felt a lot less important. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like it's
2: time to, like, regain some of those skills. Because, for example, Mm -hmm. if you want to watch Drop Dead Gorgeous, it's not streaming anywhere, I think, because of music rights or, you know, various shows from the, the 90s that either were never released in a you know DVD or a streaming way or took a very long time to get there often because of music rights and yeah, I definitely there was a period when I stopped downloading stuff. I think it was being able to finally afford <laughs> HBO Max or at least having friends who afforded it and wanted to share it with me. I don't feel great about the kind of mostly streaming model because I think it gives us a feeling of power mm-hmm. and it like gives us the sort of the sense of everything being at our fingertips the way, you know, peer to peer file sharing did. But it's actually you really have no power at all, um, clearly. And I and we all know that that, but we just kind of just don't have time to think about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the promise of streaming, especially like when Netflix came up, was Mm -hmm. that you could have access to all these titles for a low monthly price. Yeah. And then that changed so rapidly when it became abundantly clear that that just wasn't a sustainable business model for them, or Mm -hmm. at least they couldn't have infinite growth doing stuff like that. Yeah,
2: and I think it's also, it's fascinating now how we're seeing that inevitably come up in terms of how writers are paid, how Mm -hmm. people who make TV are paid. There was a point at which the Screen Actors Guild got a deal for actors' movies to be replayed on TV, which was a new technology at the time, and uh, naturally, the act Did not get the kind of rights of repayment that they should have for their work being replayed on TV over and over and it feels very similar to what's happening now where Mm -hmm. you look at people who are paid by sort of how often a show they worked on is streamed on Hulu or something like that and how it's it's nowhere near what it should be it's nowhere near fair. Um, and I feel like one of the things that inevitably comes up whenever we have a, a technological leap in terms of how people consume media and how it's distributed, we also have, you know, this kind of Wild West uh, situation where inevitably the people actually doing the work to create media are paid much less than they should be and then sort of the artist and the people are pitted against each other or the artist wants to pit himself against the people and if we look at metallica and the napster situation Mm -hmm. but that really it's it's never artist versus consumer it's always media overlord versus everybody else
1: very much so when you say metallica versus the people could you explain a little bit of that
2: yeah, so this was basically um, Lars Ulrich of Metallica just decided that he this was a bridge he could not cross and that he was going to help lead the charge against Napster. And it mm-hmm. was just like, not
1: a cute look.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Putting it mildly. Something interesting that I found out while I was preparing for this conversation is that the time period that we were kind of just talking about where we stopped pirating consistently Mm -hmm. seems to be coming to an end. According to CNET, in 2022, pirating films increased by about 39 percent compared with 2021, Mm -hmm. while visits to piracy websites to watch TV shows rose by about 9 Mm percent. I have some thoughts as to why, including what you're talking about in terms of artists not actually being fairly paid for what's happening on streaming platforms. But do you have any other thoughts as to why pirating has increased?
2: I mean, if I think about how I relate to to what's available to me, it's just, I imagine sometimes it's just easier, right? Because you have like 19 different streaming platforms Mm -hmm. to watch something on. There's like, you know, aggregator websites where you can search across all of them and see what's where. But like, even those can't always keep up, I find. Or like, You can watch something on Amazon Prime, but only if you have the Paramount Plus subscription bundle Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, we've gotten to the point where the hassle of it sometimes feels harder than just doing the illegal thing. It feels like the period, you know, about the 30s in New York City, there were like nine newspapers, Mm. probably more. And, you know, now live in an era of monopolies, but we have not yet kind of consolidated the streaming service landscape. And when it gets to the point where you have to either be paying for or in the loop with people who are paying for $200 a month worth of streaming, then like, what's the point?
1: (laughs) Yeah, there was this moment where before every single broadcasting channel decided to start its own streaming network, yeah. where they were all on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And then I think they realized that that wasn't really helping them at all. And they yeah. were like, what if I started my own thing? And then the promise that we were given that it would replace our cable bundle yeah. ended up becoming another cable bundle.
2: Yeah, and it's the price of a cable bundle, but it's more complicated to navigate. Uh, Drew Gooden,
1: one of my favorite
2: YouTubers, his description of this is that there's eleven, you know, streaming platforms and they all take turns owning Spider Man two. Yes. Right? It's so true. It's just a circle and they're just passing it mm-hmm. around. <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
1: I'm just like, where do I watch this movie that was on Netflix two weeks ago, but is now on
2: Tubi? My response to this, because the last pirating service I used regularly was the Pirate Bay, which I think I used through grad school. Really, like for me, I just want to watch one of the same 15 movies most of the time when I want to relax. And I just buy them on YouTube
1: and then that's what I do. yeah. I've been thinking about pirating a lot lately, mostly because I've also lost the skill to do it. Also, because last year, when Warner Brothers and Discovery merged, they decided that to write off debt, they were just going to get rid of a bunch of both unaired and already released TV shows. Oh, God, yeah. This was the moment that most people remember as when HBO said they would no longer be carrying shows like Westworld and Legendary. And sad as for me, f-boy island (laughs) but because these shows are created for streaming very few of them if any have any sort of physical media associated Mm -hmm. with them the thing about the born ultimatum being taken off netflix is i can always just buy that on dvd Mm -hmm. but i don't know if i can buy f-boy island on dvd (laughs) or if i even have the power (laughs) to play it where's the criterion set of f-boy island exactly (laughs) with director's commentary (laughs) (laughs) I'm still laughing about the concept of a Criterion Collection version of F Boy Island, and I might have a new idea to pitch. But while I'm doing that, we need to take a short break. When I come back, I will be joined once again by Sarah Marshall, and we will be talking about piracy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Hi, y'all. Hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening to Icy then welcome. I am so thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, that's what Icy stands for. Also, our show comes out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You are currently listening to the Saturday episode. Our past Wednesdays was a mailbag with Slate ride and Atish Pawa. We answered so many questions about Everything you could possibly want to know. We talked about AI generated music. We talked about bullying on Twitter. We talked about Aaliyah core, which has nothing to do with the singer Aaliyah. I know. Don't you want to know more? You should check out Wednesday's episode. And I'm back with Sarah Marshall. So one of the creators affected by the HBO Max rapture of content was Owen Dennis, who made Infinity Train, a mm. show whose final two seasons were streamed as HBO Max originals, mm. and in the aftermath of his show basically being wiped off the planet, he changed his Twitter bio to creator of Infinity Train, a show that got pulled from HBO Max and can now only be pirated, which I think is funny, yeah. but also makes me wonder if maybe we shouldn't all be, like, burning DVDs of our favorite things.
2: Yeah! I, f- I mean, it's and it's funny because when streaming first came along as a concept, I remember the first thing I streamed, too. It was Real Genius on Netflix in 2007. Mm-hmm. It was very grainy, um, but I was thrilled. Because, you know, I was in high school and college in the era when it was both annoying and expensive to have to buy DVDs, and it was exciting to be liberated from, but also you, like, had your DVD collection, and you could kind of stroke them. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not the only one who kind of, you know... <laughs> You run a finger along the spine. You you tickle them, um, and and you show them off. When when you bring someone over, you're like, "Look, I like Kislovsky films. I must be a good kisser." Um, <laughs> And, yeah, I mean, and I remember feeling like, but when we stream stuff, then, like, you don't own it. And, like, if they mm-hmm. take it away, then, like, they can take it away for good. And the same people made the same argument about Kindles, that, you know, if you buy a book for your Kindle, but you don't have a physical book, then, like, Amazon can just disappear it one day. Yeah. And, you know, God knows they're trustworthy people, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I trust Jeff Bezos with my life.
2: Yeah. Of co- and you should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what he wants, <laughs> but right and just. And I think that it is good for us to receive these very harsh wake-up calls. It's horrible for the creators that it happens to. Like I have written things for websites that have gone under and are now un- inaccessible unless somebody saved it and it's on the Wayback Machine somewhere. But you know, to lose an entire show that, you know, not just the creator worked on, but the actors, the producers, the set decorators, the craft services people, like so many people's work and time and energy goes into making media. And to have that just be wiped away is like, I do find that like viscerally horrifying.
1: It's really jarring in a way that I don't think I was expecting it to be because, Mm -hmm. yeah, we work for digital media. I think only maybe two or three of the pieces I've ever written have appeared in print. Like, I've been made in digital media. And so I've kind of grown up or, like, come to adulthood with the idea that my work could disappear at any given moment. And every few years, I go through a spree of downloading my articles just to make sure that I have track of them. And then I started writing too many articles because I was a blogger. And I was (gasps) like, well, if that one disappears to the Internet, I actually don't mind. (laughs) But we're used to that in a way because of the format that we work in. But there is something about a television show or a movie disappearing that was made so recently. Like, I think Mm -hmm. we're used to lost media from the 20s or the 30s. Yes,
2: where they're like, we threw away all these Lon Chaney movies. Exactly.
1: (laughs) But it's like, that was an accident. No one thought to preserve it. Versus what's happening now where a corporation can just decide to disappear something.
2: Yeah, and that's the scariest thing maybe, that it's up to corporations where, like, you look at lost films of early Hollywood or whatever, and it's like, and often, you know, sometimes it's just that, um, or like, you know, the loss of of old movie props, like those were corporate issues because a studio would just be like, yeah, we're just going to junk all this. It's just cheaper to destroy it than to preserve it, so whatever. But that it comes down to, you know, the... What, six corporations that run our entire lives Mm -hmm. who are just like, we are going to save a fraction of a penny on the dollar if we no longer let anyone watch Westworld for the rest of their lives.
1: I think Westworld hit me the hardest because it was one of HBO's prestige shows. Mm -hmm. I was just like, you're going to get rid of that? Yeah, like, who's safe? Exactly, exactly. I mean... We mentioned that the argument against piracy, besides the typical you wouldn't download a car line, which, again, presumes a lot about who I am as a person. Right. (laughs) But the argument is that it fucks over artists. And, I mean, I think we both agree that artists should be paid for their work. But the thing that kind of trips me up about that argument is that they're not really getting paid for under the current models now. Like, artists get pennies for every stream on Spotify. The Writers Guild is currently on strike, partially Mm -hmm. because residuals from streaming are so paltry, despite mm-hmm. the fact that most people get their entertainment from streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. So, artists aren't really getting a great deal from the status quo. Mm-hmm. And it's that deal is only made worse by the fact that, apparently, now we can just wipe things from the earth. And... They will never exist in physical form, which is a long-winded way of asking, where do you kind of come down on piracy, like morally, ethically, or whatever? Like, is there any real difference between pirating because you think this thing should be free, Mm -hmm. which is bad, and pirating Mm -hmm. because you're scared that this thing just won't exist anymore at some point, which is good.
2: It's always seemed like a victimless crime to me, and I'm sure that someone could explain to me how people pirating music or a movie or whatever en masse affects the people who make it but also i mean the thing is like people want to see movies in theaters Mm -hmm. as long as it's safe for them and as long as they can afford to do it like we download media i think partly because we want to experience it in a bigger way and we want to learn what we want more of and people want to go to movies they want to go to concerts um they want to engage directly with with media that they love and they want i think for the most part artists that they love to be paid um, and to throw whatever they can into the hat when it goes around. But to me, the issue is is really that I don't think we're cutting into money artists could be making. I think mm-hmm. we're cutting into money corporations could be making when we're doing that. And I don't care about them.
1: Yeah. And this also makes me think of something I found out when I was researching this episode, which is that Radiohead, apparently in 2000 with Kid A, their first album after OK Computer, it was kind of made by Napster because a few songs from it appeared on Napster a few months before the official release date. It was it was basically leaked. But that meant that a lot of people had listened to it by the time the album actually came out. And I think the assumption about piracy would lead people to believe that that kind of popularity would mean people wouldn't buy the album once it came out. But what ended up happening is once the album was officially released a few months after that leak, It charted number one on the Billboard Top 200 sales chart, which was the first time that it happened for Radiohead. So it seems like, paradoxically, a lot of artists are actually helped by the free promotion and hype that is given by sharing stuff illegally.
2: Yeah, completely. And I mean, I... Something I find fascinating and have been talking to people about kind of a- around the, you know, the writer's strike is never growing up imagined that so many people with so much power in media would have no real idea of how it works. It's because the people who have the power in media didn't get there by understanding media. They got there by, like, having their dad be a shoe millionaire or whatever. Succession. <laughs> Succession. I know. we're all, Right. Everyone's being, you know, all these companies are being run by Kendall Roy in one way or another. And a show that I hope has never disappeared by HBO, but apparently no one's saying.
1: I was thinking about that. I was like, everyone loves Succession. I just started watching Succession. Could this disappear one day? Because that'd be
2: wild. Yeah, and just that, you know, that media, I think, is, is not controlled by people who understand the resources that go into creating a piece of art or a piece of entertainment. I think media is run by people who... Uh, fundamentally see an episode of a show or a, or an album or a movie as something like a garment that can be mass-produced. Mm-hmm. Making any kind of media, like you can't do it with the kind of machine-like efficiency that I think the, the people in charge really want.
1: The garment analogy is so smart because something that I found out recently is that people think that clothes are made by robots but every single piece of clothing that you wear is made by a human being like we have not reached the point of production ability where you don't need humans to sew clothes Mm -hmm. and the reason things are so cheap is not because it's made by machines but because we have so devalued the labor of garment workers yeah and and That's basically what a lot of corporations want to do to media, where you just kind of disappear the effort made into it and say, this is not even worth saving.
2: I mean, mean, actually, a great example is like, I'm wearing my favorite shirt. I bought it at Universal Studios. I guess went there. It is my, I panned for gold at Jupiter's claim. And all I got was this shirt shirt. (laughs) Um, I love that they have note merch there. I was not expecting it and I and because this is from a theme park I think it probably costs like35 dollars mm. which is ridiculous but like if I stole this shirt like would the person who made it suffer mm. no they would not would Universal Studios suffer no um, would they not get to charge35 dollars for a shirt that the person who made it was paid pennies for if that again it's like the idea of theft affecting, the creator of the thing being stolen feels, from everything I know, just dramatically out of touch with how all of this works.
1: hmm Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this in the context of digital media for a while as we were talking about, especially because, I mean, one of the most common complaints we get about this show is that there are too many ads. and. Mm-hmm. I'm often like, how do you think these things get made? Mm -hmm. Even as I don't directly see like revenue from those ads, but I'm aware that it goes into my paycheck. Yeah. But this kind of world we're living in now where things can just disappear at the whim of any company kind of makes me really nervous for my career and my life. Just because there's just, A lack of concerted effort to preserve digital archives which is bad not just personally but for democracy like Mm -hmm. entire archives of newspapers are disappeared online all the time because someone bought them and I'm curious as to how you think about this as someone both with a deep interest in history Mm -hmm. and as someone who also has a deep stake in the internet as a medium to kind of disseminate your work
2: Yeah, gosh, totally. Right. And like something I don't think about very much because I think it's too scary is like everything I've done in podcasting, which is where like the bulk of my energy has gone in the past five years, like not just creatively, but, you know, generally like none of that exists physically, Mm -hmm. you know. And I don't really even know how I would go about preserving it. I guess I should just be burning CDs of all my shows or something. And then as someone who loves archives and archival research, there are, you know, if you're talking about newspaper archives, then like... You can still access microfiche and do some, like, 90s thriller role-playing doing that. Mm-hmm. And you can still find physical copies of newspapers in libraries. And so it's, you know, there's there's possibilities there still. But the great promise of the Internet was that information would be available easily and quickly and cheaply or freely. And that, you know, it's better for all of us when we have access to... Accurate information that we can find instantaneously rather than by like getting in the car, going to a library, going into a basement, you know, paging through. So, like, there's a reason why most people don't do that with their free time, and it's because they have other things to do. And it feels like what I love and what I think so many of us love about the internet being such a force in our lives is that the information that we have access to is one of the positives in all this. And so it only works if that is not being controlled by the people who have all the power um, offline and, and have all the power
1: online. Thank you again to Sarah Marshall. I will be calling you up in a year to discuss whatever is relevant in April 2024. I can't even begin to predict what it will be, but we'll both be here. All right, that is the show. I will be back in your feed on Wednesday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode, the best way to never miss us condoning a crime, allegedly. Please leave a rating and review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, should I start downloading all my favorite shows just in case Netflix decides to delete them? And you can also always drop us a note at IcyMI at slate.com. IcyMI is produced by Sierra spragley Rips and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. See you online or on Pirate Bay.